Welcome to the COVID-19 Researcher Spotlight Series. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and today we're sharing an interview with three scientists from the San Francisco Bay Area who work to establish COVID-19 testing for Californians as a collaborative effort between UCSF and the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Eric Chow, Amy Kistler, and Emily Crawford have helped provide reliable COVID-19 testing, as well as genomic sequencing of SARS-CoV-2 to better understand and diagnose the spread of the coronavirus in California. Hi, Eric, Amy, and Emily. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, So I was wondering if we could sort of um, circle up with each of you and have each of you tell us a little bit about your COVID-related research. Yeah, I can can go ahead and start. This is Emily. My background is as a, a protein biochemist, but in the past five years or so, I've been focused on development of novel diagnostic methods for infectious diseases. So um, it was a relatively easy uh, transition for me to start focusing entirely on COVID-19 when the pandemic began. And I am now running a clinical diagnostic testing facility uh, hosted by UCSF and the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, where we, uh, we take samples from public health departments around the state of California and we return clinical re- clinically reportable PCR results um, showing presence or absence of, of SARS-CoV-2. And um, uh, Eric has been helping out setting up um, the lab as well over the last few months. This is Eric. Um, my background is in genomics around next generation sequencing, as well as automation. And a lot of the focus of my previous research before COVID uh, is on improving ways of using technology to do genomic research, such as new ways of doing uh, NGS library prep, um, different ways of using automation to enable higher throughput uh, sample processing. And so some of these skills uh, definitely applied well to um, the current situation where we need to do a lot of um, nucleic acid-based tests to detect SARS-CoV-2. And um, over the past couple of months, I've been really involved in the UCSF Chan Zuckerberg Biohub efforts to get a testing lab booted up and to scale up operations. My name is Amy Kistler, and I've been focusing on the sequencing efforts, the genome sequencing efforts of the SARS-CoV-2 that are circulating in California. My background is in viral genomics and virology, and I was it was a very natural transition uh, for me to shift gears with um, the established metagenomic uh, sequencing uh, efforts that we've developed here at the Biohub, a number of them that Emily has been um, significantly involved in um, developing to pivot to begin looking at those strategies for mapping the distribution of SARS-CoV-2 to understand its transmission and circulation in California. And Amy, just to stay on that topic, how is your work in sequencing the genome of SARS-CoV-2 going to inform our understanding of the virus and uh, inform our understanding of how it's moving through the state of California? Uh, yeah, so SARS-CoV-2 uh, accumulates mutations at a rate of about one per every two weeks. So we're seeing mutations. Uh, mutations can arise over the course of uh, transmission events. And what this allows us to do is understand uh, when we see cases arising, how closely related they are in space and time, as well as in genetic sequence, 
And that helps us with collaborative information from epidemiologists uh, at Departments of Public Health, where a number of the samples are coming from, uh, to really get a much higher resolution picture of how the virus is actually moving around. Each mutation or the sequences of the virus, you could think of them as kind of like a barcode for the virus. And so we can be following the viruses based on their barcodes as they move around the state. That's really interesting. Emily, just to follow up on specifically the research that you're doing, could you talk us through the workflow for detecting SARS-CoV-2 in, in patient samples that you're receiving? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll start by giving a little bit of background on how our testing facility um, got started, if that's okay. So, you know, I, I've been a, a researcher, a research scientist for my whole career. And so so have uh, Eric and Amy and most of the, the people that we're working with now. Um, but back in March, uh, the governor of California uh, made a few small uh, tweaks to regulations around um, who can do clinical diagnostic, uh, you know, clinically reportable diagnostic testing in the state. And as a response to that, UCSF um, realized that uh, they were sort of sitting on a, um, a great resource to help out the community, which was, you know, a, a large number of graduate students and postdocs, a lot of equipment, a lot of um, expertise in doing um, the thing that, that's most needed by the state and by the world right now, which is um, testing people for SARS-CoV-2. So we, in early to mid-March, we transitioned our research lab space into a clinical diagnostic space where we now um, take samples in and results out uh, a presence or absence of, of SARS-CoV-2. And the process, it, it is, it's interesting. It's been an interesting learning experience to understand um, what the different challenges are with doing clinical diagnostic as opposed, as opposed to doing a research test. Um, the most notable is that the, the difficulties and the hard work all happens upstream of the, of the analytical um, steps. So we receive uh, from our public health department partners uh, hundreds and uh, thousands per day, actually, of, of tubes with samples in them. So these are collection tubes containing the nasopharyngeal swabs that everyone is familiar with. And we need to enter the patient information from that tube into our database. And we need to transfer the um, material in the tube into 96-well plate format so that we can process it in high throughput um, and then actually proceed with the PCR. So you know, one one of the biggest challenges there is just how do you how do you take samples in tubes and transition them into plates? Um, and actually, Eric has been sort of spearheaded um, the efforts to figure out how to do that early on. Um, we have a couple of different robotic solutions for making that that transition happen. Um, but it's something that, as a researcher, you you don't necessarily think about that step as being the biggest challenge. But when you're actually trying to do this work at scale. Um, that that becomes a, potentially a big uh, bottleneck. So after the samples are in plates, we do uh, RNA extraction, um, just the way you would do in, in any kind of typical uh, research setting. And we do that on, again, in 96 well format on a, a liquid handling robot. Um, and then we, um, we transfer the sample, the, the RNA into uh, 384 well plate to do a PCR reaction. And, and early on, we played around with a few different sets of PCR probes. 
uh, and made the decision to use uh, one N-gene probe and one E-gene probe, which we thought uh, performed best in our hands. Um, and so that's, that's how we developed our, our EUA uh, assay based on, on those two. And then the, the, the final step that's really important to, to think about is the data processing and um, another you know, key aspect of setting up the lab was creating uh, a LIMS system, a laboratory information management system, where we were able to uh, uh, keep track of, of all of the uh, information that uh, sort of came with the tube to, to begin with, and then um, connect that to the results um, in the end. And the actual resulting, resulting where the positive or negative result goes out to the uh, clinician or the public health department, um, that is uh, taken care of by our, our clinical lab partners uh, over at UCSF. I just wanted to highlight the just how the EMILY's workflow is, is somewhat, our, the sequencing workflow is kind of an outgrowth of EMILY's workflow. Yeah. Early on during the outbreak, you know, the, the huge priority for us here was to develop surge capacity for testing um, as we were seeing the pandemic unfold. And, uh, you know, what Emily described got spun up in, in an amazingly rapid time and in, in, on the order of about a week to, from ground zero to the first testing. And uh, am I correct, Emily, for the CLIA hub eight days? And so what, yeah. what she described is that, you know, happened in, tremendously rapidly. And um, in terms of the sequencing workflow, that was something that was sort of a, a has been a secondary follow on work in terms of the public health need and urgency. And the work that Emily and Eric did to pull all this together, actually, uh, we were on the sequencing side, we had established metagenomic sequencing flows, et cetera, for basic research. And so there was less development there that needed to be done from the ground up, but a follow-on uh, workflow needed to uh, be developed in order to be able to, A, process the samples that people were sending directly to us, as well as samples that were coming, um, that we had clearance to uh, carry out sequencing analysis that were coming through the, the CLIA Hub testing lab. So uh, all the work that they did and the groundwork they laid was a great model for us as we built additional tools to enable um, both metagenomic and amplicon sequencing of SARS-CoV-2. And uh, even at the level of, you know, a lot of the labs were sending us two and we move, we needed to move things from tubes to plates to automate it much in the same way that they did downstairs and all the groundwork that Eric laid for processing clinical samples also worked with processing RNA samples that were sent to us from different labs around the state. That's really phenomenal that um, you were able to implement those new systems and I'm sure there's lots of new regulatory requirements that you needed to meet. Um, eight days seems like a a phenomenally short amount of time uh, to be able to accomplish that. And Eric, do you want to speak a little bit to um, what it took to be able to implement those robotics to uh, allow for this magnitude of samples to be tested? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that everything that we're describing here is the work uh, done by dozens and dozens of people at UCSF uh, and Biohub to get this together. Uh, as you mentioned, getting a, a lab booted up in, in eight days uh, to do CLIA testing is no small feat. And a lot of this uh, is really due to the really close cooperation and really tight teamwork uh, between the groups here. Um, I'd say especially with the uh, uses of clinical labs that provided a lot of guidance. Um, as Emily and Amy both mentioned, you know, we're all research scientists. We don't do CLIA testing as uh, uh, our, uh, our professional lives. And so we really depended on the expertise from, from those groups 
uh, to guide us on how to file um, the FDA um, EUAs for our laboratory developed tests. And uh, without their their help, it just wouldn't have happened. Uh, but in terms of the robotics, um, a lot of this is working with um, different vendors first to see which vendors could deliver equipment in, in a rapid manner. As you imagine, um, you know, you've heard about supply shortages uh, for reagents uh, for doing COVID testing. The same thing is happening uh, with equipment as well. So the first thing was finding automation vendors that we could um, find that could provide the supplies and equipment in a timely manner. And we were able to do that. And to um, also work closely with those automation vendors just to um, get the programs developed. You know, we had ideas of how we wanted the workflows to operate and worked really closely with some of the application specialists at these automation companies to enable those workflows to happen. Well, it's a good thing you had such strong relationships built with them already. Yeah, definitely. I think um, we've uh, all used uh, quite a bit of automation at Biohub and over at UCSF. And so we're definitely able to, to leverage uh, those existing relationships. So I'm curious, now that you're up and running, um, and I know that California is experiencing um, a surge in cases again right now, you know, we're recording this on um, July 17th. Um, and California is sort of in the middle of a of a of a new wave or maybe the second half of the first wave. Um, so how many samples are you able to process in a day? And, and what does that look like in terms of sample turnaround time? Yeah, I can speak to that. So um, I think our average uh, sam- number of samples per day that we process hovers around a thousand per day. Um, our, our record, which we set uh, just this past Sunday actually was 1,932 samples processed in one day. And so there's there has been a trend upward in, in how many samples we're receiving, and we're doing our best to accommodate that. Again, working with just a, a phenomenal group of, of people in the lab, we're mostly staffed um, by volunteers, uh, UCSF uh, PhD students and graduate students, and actually MD students as well. Um, who come in and give us their time, you know, after they're done with their normal research days or um, or classes or whatever it be, you know, they they really have been phenomenal in, in stepping up and um, and coming in to help out um, and and donate their time. We really appreciate that so much. But we are uh, we are also uh, working on ways to Im- improve our capacity because we know that it's it's very badly needed, and we we're trying to do that while also keeping an eye on our turnaround time because we know that the value that we provide to the public health department partners uh, is really in how how rapid we are um, when they send samples right now to Quest or LabCorp. Um, unfortunately, m- most of the time they have a several day turnaround time and that can be really detrimental to trying to control an outbreak. So, you know, we know that we have to keep our sample numbers relatively low in order to um, in order to not uh, build up a, a backlog. So that's that's kind of something that we that we think about regularly. And, and we work closely again with our UCSF partners and we also work closely with the public health departments to um, you know, communicate with them about what their needs are and how we can best meet them. Well, that's really important. And I, it sounds like the collaborations and the communication that you've been able to establish are really key to a lot of the success um, of the turnaround time and the system that you have set up there to support the community and the, and the state's testing efforts. I'm curious, Amy, why is this work important to you? Um, one piece about the work that's important to me is just being able to apply, you know, 
modern 21st century approaches to this um, question that's really where technology can make a big contribution. So, you know, a lot of the, the tools that epidemiologists in the public health sector have available to them are not really that different. You know, boots on the ground epidemiology is um, not that different from what's what was done during the pandemic of influenza in 1918. I mean, certainly we have more some more sophisticated tools on that front, but it does boil down to, um, you know, kind of tracking down leads and, you know, digging through paperwork, et cetera. And if there's a way that we can contribute to helping them solidify their the data that they have, that's important to make potentially really challenging public health interventions, such as, um, understanding if it's an outbreak in a congregate setting like a skilled nursing facility or uh, some kind of a workplace where there's um, an, in, you know, a question about whether that workplace needs to shut down. Really being able to have sequence data that is hard data that can help you uh, clarify the inferences you have about whether something's an outbreak from a single introduction versus potentially multiple sources feeding into cases that are occurring around the same time can be um, incredibly helpful for our public health. And um, just to be able to help them do that in um, you know, a rapid way with these new technologies that may not be readily available in all the public health labs, I think has been really important to me. Yeah, and certainly an, an advantage for Californians. We have Silicon Valley uh, is one of our neighbors. And I think people generally think about California as, you know, um, the center of, of high technology and uh, the idea of being able to, whether it's testing or sequencing, you know, deploy all the technology and expertise that we have available in the state to help um, address the pandemic and maybe control or mitigate the outcomes associated with the pandemic. That's really important to me to be a part of that and to be driving that forward. So I know that um, all of you are involved in a lot of collaborations um, regarding COVID-19 research. Could you tell us about some of them? Sure. Um, I can just talk briefly about uh, some of the uh, clinical research studies that we've been able to be involved in. So another uh, value to having this testing capacity has been um, not only to be able to, to help with fulfilling public health needs, but also to support research studies that have gone on in the community. Uh, the most notable one um, that we participated in back in, um, gosh, I guess it was back in April now, or maybe May, was a study in the Mission District of San Francisco, where a UCSF group was able to partner with some local community groups in the Mission District um, to set up a um, very um, comprehensive testing campaign over the course of a couple of days where they tested uh, about 4,500 people from one small um, census tract uh, in the Mission District. Um, and we were able to process the samples there um, and, and deliver results. And, you know, there were a number of people who, um, who tested positive, uh, many of whom were asymptomatic. So that was uh, valuable um, information uh, on an individual level, as well as valuable um, uh, to understand the extent of asymptomatic um, infection in, in our community. Um, and, and what was really valuable about that study um, is that uh, it was it was done by Diane Havlier's group at UCSF, and they uh, put a lot of thought into designing it in a way that we would get useful information out of it. And um, kind of the the really key take home from from the results was that there was a, a very um, 
strong increased risk of testing positive among people who um, were unable to work from home. So people whose jobs required them to be um, out of the out of the home and be out in in the community. You know, this is what we refer to as essential workers. Um, those are really where the people that that were being hardest hit. And so it, it really uh, highlighted for for us as a as a city and and as a community. I guess how big the disparities are with this disease already, where we're seeing um, we're seeing certain groups of people hit really uh, harder than than others, and I think that that has helped us um, all to kind of refocus our our efforts, both in testing as well as in in public policy, to try to support the people who um, uh, who, who need it most. Um, I can speak to the sequencing aspects that are are both linked to the work that Emily has been doing, as well as independent. Uh, basic research that we're doing here on SARS-CoV-2 as the outbreak unfolds. So um, the mission study that Emily described was a really, really great uh, collaboration and example of the synergy that we can have between the testing that's going on in the CLIA hub and the sequencing that we're carrying out um, at the BioHub for research purposes. So among uh, the samples from the mission district, uh, study that Emily described, we identified and cherry-picked through the automation uh, practices that have been developed downstairs and upstairs. We were able to, um, through the LIMB system that was developed, rapidly identify all the positive samples from the Mission District study, cherry-pick them for sequencing upstairs, uh, perform sequencing, and then begin to analyze how any patterns that we were seeing of the types of clusters that were identified epidemiologically in the really careful, you know, uh, high, high touch epidemiologic work that Diane Havlier's group was doing. And uh, what in terms of the data that was going on in households, or uh, contacts among the people that in the community that participated in the study, and the actual sequences of the viruses that we were seeing um, arising within the positives. And so that was a really beautiful, I feel like a really beautiful illustration of how the testing through the sequencing can help us to really understand how the virus is moving within a community. And what was really gratifying, I think I can speak for myself and probably for Emily to, to say that, you know, Diane Havlier's group was also going back and returning to the community to uh, follow up with the families and the patients and the positives for um, treatment and further um, clinical follow-up. And so that was a great um, experience to be involved in that. So there, the, I, I guess, aside from that study, there are sort of three categories of sequencing research that we're doing around the SARS-CoV-2 um, during the pandemic. One is um, also somewhat tied with Emily's work in that we are, through the connections that Emily forged with Departments of Public Health, we extended those to invite Departments of Public Health to provide us samples for um, sequencing for epidemiologic analysis. We did that um, in small scale, and now that sort of turned into um, uh, sort of a, a bigger project where we've opened the doors for free sequencing to all uh, county public health labs, as as well as the state public health lab. And that's a project we're calling internally uh, here at the BioHub COVID Tracker. But there have been some uh, continued discussions with the Department of Public Health of California, and they're expanding and kind of connecting an effort, uh, a more statewide effort to, call, they're calling COVID-Net, that includes not just the BioHub, but other academic and potentially commercial labs that can facilitate sequencing of isolates across California to get a better understanding 
of the phylogenetic tree of uh, SARS-CoV-2s circulating in California, as well as to help public health labs with epidemiologic tracing. So that's one big project, um, and uh, that's really been spearheaded by uh, actually a data scientist at Biohub, uh, Joshua Batson, David Dinerman, and um, uh, also our biosecurity fellow, Patrick Askew. Well, I'll certainly be interested to hear how those um, studies play out. I think it's really important information, um, you know, not just for the community of California, but really um, for the United States as, as well as for the rest of the world right now. You know, I just wanted to thank you all for your collaborative spirit and your ingenuity in bringing this fast, reliable testing um, and genomic sequencing to further the understanding of the spread um, to the state of California. So Emily, Amy, and Eric, thank you so much for taking time out of your research schedules um, to talk to me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This interview was recorded prior to the CLIA Hub COVID-19 testing facility being closed in October as testing capacity improved in California. Testing for the public health departments is now being conducted at UCSF, among other locations. Overall, the group completed more than 160,000 tests. Amy is continuing her work at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. With the recent surge in COVID-19 cases in California, her group has received a deluge of COVID-19 positive samples for SARS-CoV-2 genome sequencing. This COVID tracker genomic epidemiology project with California County Departments of Public Health and the state DPH will continue into 2021 with an added emphasis on capacity building. Emily has returned to her research at UCSF and she continues to support the project as an independent consultant. Eric is currently back to running the technology team at the Laboratory for Genomics Research, a functional genomics collaboration between UC San Francisco, UC Berkeley, and GlaxoSmithKline. The goal of this collaboration is to develop and deploy new CRISPR-Cas-based screening tools to better understand the genetic causes of diseases. Thanks for listening to this episode of the COVID-19 Researcher Spotlight series. Join us next time when I interview senior scientist Bajoita Roy, who leads a lab in the RNA Research Department here at New England Biolabs. Bajoita will walk us through the process of COVID-19 vaccine development, with a focus on mRNA vaccines and the promising candidates awaiting FDA approval. She'll also discuss with us how NEB research scientists are working to improve and streamline mRNA synthesis workflows.